Welcome back to Behind Startup Lines, the essential podcast for anyone navigating the tumultuous world of startups, where the best laid plans often evolve upon meeting reality. This season, we're diving even deeper, engaging with a cadre of founders, operators, and investors ready to bear the nuts and bolts of early stage ventures. Today, we shine that spotlight on George Unsworth, the enterprising mind behind Mortar, a venture that exemplifies agility and foresight in the public sector through innovative data intelligence tools. Even though George is at an early point in his entrepreneurial path, he's already navigated through pivotal changes and learned to trust his gut when faced with uncertainty. In our candid discussion, George opens up about his strategic shift from the private to the public sector and the emerging trend of securing public sector clientele through authentic partnership models. We delve into the criticality of pricing strategies and transparency in fostering a product that not only appeals, but is also attainable. With Mortar experiencing a purple patch right now and gearing up for growth and investment, George reflects on the considerations and aspirations driving Mortar's upward trajectory. Additionally, we unpack the invaluable role of advisors in bolstering a founder's vision and journey. I'll also be sharing my take on leveraging case studies effectively. Each episode is a treasure trove of insights, and I trust you'll find George's perspective as enlightening as I have. So let's dive in and discover the pearls of wisdom George has to offer today. George, it's great to have you on Behind Startup Lines. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Phil. Really happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. My pleasure. Now, we've known each other for a few years, and I've been watching your journey closely at Mortar as you build the business. But why don't you tell our audience a bit about you, your background, uh, and the business that you're building? Sure. Thanks, Phil. Um, So at Mortar, we're building better services. We make it easier for our customers to capture data and apply intelligence to help and support their users. Over the last few years, we've been building... Uh, a product framework. It allows us to design specific solutions that improve the front door into services for housing, health, and local government. Uh, Traditional websites are essentially terrible for creating the types of journeys and experiences for users that services need, uh, especially from an accessibility perspective. Um, So we're working to, to improve that for them and develop the solutions they need. So, George, how did you end up uh, building Mortar? I mean, was this something that you had experienced yourself when you were working in the public sector or uh, just a a problem you felt needed solving from looking afar? So it's part of a long journey. Uh, It goes back to uh, when we first met, I think, Phil, um, because originally, although my background is working uh, with public sector partners, Originally, I founded Mortar uh, to work much more specifically in the housing sector uh, and specifically to provide uh, solutions to uh, public sector housing, but also uh, private sector and even commercial um, property and real estate. We were looking initially at a tool and a product uh, that supported um, the rent account and the visualization of the rent account. And I was really interested in Um, creating um, better payment schedules, so informing the collections process, um, income generation and collections, and making that uh, a better user experience for everyone involved. 
Uh, and that came from my experience working in, in housing, right. looking after tenants uh, and trying to resolve their problems around uh, the rent rent account and rents due. Right. Um, and, and you said we. So you happened, had a, though, a, a, co-part, a co-founder partner that's been building this with you? That's right. Yeah, I've had a, a co-founder since the outset um, back in 2019 when we founded uh, the company. Um, Alpa uh, works predominantly in, in product development. Uh, so we found quite naturally that we, uh, we had a good working relationship, me taking a front foot in the uh, customer relations, uh, driving kind of public face of the, of the product and the company, and more to working with uh, a group of designers and developers that uh, we've had good contact with for a long period of time in our professional work. Okay. So you set out on this journey, and when we met, it was several years ago through an accelerator program. What was that experience like for you? Was that helpful at that stage of growing? I mean, a lot of people are interested to know if accelerators are worth the time. For us, it was great. It was really good exposure uh, at a really kind of early stage where we were looking to validate uh, and, and verify our thoughts around the, the market. Um, and it did give us contact with some uh, large-scale commercial companies operating uh, a lot of property, uh, and they did seem to exhibit a, a strong interest in our work um, and had a specific pain point that we were interested in, which was around payment allocations and uh, how to improve the efficiencies in their finance function. Um, I think what happened, though, was it became clear that we had established a, a potential product um, in an uh, environment or in a field where the sales cycle is incredibly long. Mm. Um, we realized that for these larger corporates um, to undertake uh, our um, product, it needed to fit into their um, existing finance function tech stack. Uh, or whatever the legacy um, tech that they were using around um, accounts receivable. And and that meant that we started embarking on long journeys involving multiple teams. Um, and we realized quite early on that this was a bigger um, uh, sales process than we had imagined. And we were quite comfortable with that mm-hmm. because potentially it was a um, a very sticky product it could have become if we were to be able to sell it in. Uh, and it, it could have been a, a good uh, margin on that product as well. Um, so we persevered. And I guess in hindsight, um, we persevered for maybe a bit too long before realizing that we weren't in the right position to sell into that finance function at that period of time effectively. But one of the the good things that well, it's not really a good thing that happened at all. Our hand was forced by COVID, so right. to speak. Um, so COVID struck soon after or during that process rather. And it meant that all the conversations we were having, which wasn't many, it was three or four, but they were quite advanced conversations with, with some corporate clients. They just froze yeah. um, when COVID hit. Uh, and at that point, I guess I should have realized earlier that there was going to be no investment in this area um, for the foreseeable future. Um, and what it did, it, it allowed us to 
realign and, and reposition ourselves with uh, another product offer. And that happened to be uh, with uh, the public sector and working with local authorities. Right. I see. So you were selling to enterprise level customers in the private sector, first of all, and then found that there really wasn't, uh, I guess, a, not, not a market, but just the speed at which or the complexity of the sale meant that it was slow, then interrupted by the pandemic. Um, and that res- resulted in you having to rethink um, the application of the technology. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, that's that's pretty close to, to what took place. I think in terms of being a startup at that point in the pandemic at, as, as an early stage, uh, kind of almost pre-revenue at that point, we were um, forced into kind of reconsidering where we were going to get some traction from at that point in time. And we were lucky in some respects that from the outset, we had embraced a kind of tech for good and a social impact kind of stance with the company. Mm-hmm. We were really focused on transforming um, uh, services um, and applying better user-led design uh, in terms of how um, users were engaged and how they were uh, able to access um, information. And it was that um, that led to us being able to have um, really good conversations with uh, some local authority partners who at the point of COVID were really struggling with making uh, information more accessible, mm-hmm. getting information out to the right uh, users. And our first uh, use case was helping to identify uh, vulnerable and at-risk older residents living alone um, for um, doorstop campaigns. Uh, and that was our real turning point, and we were able to transform a lot of what we had built previously uh, into um, that specific use case and supporting that specific uh, local authority partner. And how big was the business at this point where you had to change direction? Were, how many people were involved? And did you have, whether they were paying customers or not, or trial customers, were you working with them? You know, how did you then make that shift to the new focus? We were still a, a very small outfit, um, a very lean outfit is maybe a better way of describing it. So it was myself and my co-founder, and then we had a team of um, two designers, two developers that we were working with, um, and they were not with us full time. They were just on a dedicated um, uh, kind of a freelance basis, more or less. Um, but we had the benefit of one um partnership one client uh, during that period that enabled us to keep the team together uh, and keep us working Um, it wasn't um, the the best partner for us to have in that process but it was enough to keep the balls the the wheels moving uh, and to keep us together as a team Right. And then you started to work with the public sector. How quickly, I mean, they, they must have clearly had a very pressing need at the time of COVID and the problem that you, you mentioned. How quickly were they able to mobilize to start to use your solution? And what were those early conversations like, um, just from a commercial perspective? Good question. Things didn't move that quickly. It was a real balance between Um, responding to quite an urgent need um, 
but also needing to put in place a lot of the safeguarding requirements and and data requirements necessary to work with uh, essentially um, uh, hard to reach and, and vulnerable user groups. So it, it wasn't kind of a um, a rocket flying off into the sky. Yeah. It was much more a development of a partnership, uh, understanding of um, how we could best work together. Um, but as soon as that was in place, um, we were able to start um, iterating very quickly on a solution for them. And what happened was we were able to work with uh, a few different public sector partners uh, simultaneously, and we were able to grow the framework that was necessary to start delivering um, solutions more quickly and fulfilling their requirements um, or more easily and more affordably as well. Uh, and that's when we started building out um, a framework which we call Hooped. Uh, it's a modular framework and it's been allowing us to make inroads into um, the public sector across local authorities, but also housing and, and health related partnerships as well. Um, so slow at the start, but then picked up momentum as we got um, visible use cases and case studies in those markets. You mentioned there, you talk about partnerships with these early customers. And this is a theme that I've heard talking to a lot of businesses that have been working in the public sector. Um, the very idea that you have to partner with these public sector organizations is the way in which you build those relationships. The very idea that you can go in and sell product to these often very complex buyer groups um, is, is a myth. I mean, it sounds like partnership driven approach to public sector is a way in which you build sustainable relationships. Would you agree with that? Totally. Yeah. It's, there's been a history of, um, I think, the public sector not really benefiting from large outlays in, in terms of software and tools and products. So there is a great hesitancy to get burnt again at a time when budgets are so tight and really the main drivers at the moment are cost efficiencies mm. and delivering um, real value on investment. So the trust relationship needs to be needs to be there and the, that's based upon delivering uh, affordable um, and quality products that are sustainable um, and that the, the partners, the, the public sector can actually build upon and benefit from uh, long term. So that might make certain processes longer. It might make things uh, harder initially, but I think we're becoming recognized now as um, highly responsible and very um, agile in this, this area of public sector solutions. So we're able to build upon um, some successes. And it's a, it's a success kind of driven environment whereby um, what works well for one partner in this field is really well promoted and it's celebrated mm. and there are great channels for for celebrating those successes and um, we're naturally seeing um our kind of solutions and our work be adopted and talked about um more and more based on having you know working products in the field supporting users having good impact um, and that's what everybody everybody wants to support in those sectors great could you share some of the practical things you did in the early days then to get that momentum build that momentum because it's very hard to even get people's attention within these organizations and i think that's just as relevant for the private sector today 
as it is for public. What did you do? What did, how did you get their attention and how did you start to build that credibility? I think it's very much a case of one um, good solution um, moving into the next. I think we... Um, we had a great first adopter. We had a great first partner right. um, with a local authority in East London um, where we were doing that work during the pandemic. They then invited us to um, expand on that work to support um, an information environment f- specifically for older residents, um, linking them to um, uh, third sector um, opportunities across the local area. So we started delivering a service, more or less, for um, that partner. Um, we built our, our framework around it uh, and we developed a lot of functionality around accessible information formats um, and good referral pathways um, uh, based on that relationship. And because it had a public outlet um, and it was visibly um, working with a uh, not just um, a large membership group of older residents, but also uh, a large network of um, community partners uh, and cultural partners as well in terms of their offer and promoting their offer um, because it had that that certain level of um, public visibility it was um, noticed uh, and then presented um, as part of a local government association meeting and the local government association um, saw the opportunity I think to scale these types of ways of working and these types of solutions. And we struck a really good um, rapport with some of the, the members of the local government association um, who uh, invited us to work on a digital pathfinders program mm-hmm. with another local authority. Uh, and that had a different use case. That, that use case was around uh, exploring um, the viability of triage user triage, so digital form of uh, user assessment, uh, assessing user needs um, around the subject of digital inclusion. Um, So suddenly we had this brand new use case um, with a different um, kind of a um, vertical, so to speak, um, still building off the same framework, our our product hooped. Um, But that then gave us access to a whole new uh, range of Um, opportunities associated with digital inclusion and digital skills. Um, They then supported us to roll that out because it turned out that user triage is a great um, uh, tool to be applying to a a range of different use cases. Um, But with digital inclusion in particular, we were able to roll that out across four further local authorities with their support. So the, the thing just naturally um, allowed us to have that little snowball effect. And although it's still early stage for us, we're seeing a similar relationship develop um, with the Greater London Authority um, because through that work, um, again, it got, was recognised triage and referral are really important processes that need more um, tailored and bespoke solutions for the specific services that need them. Um, and with Greater London Authority, now we're working around a a really big subject in poverty prevention um, and tenancy sustainment. So we're looking at tools um, for, again, specifically housing and local authorities uh, in those areas. When you were conceiving the product then, had you always had in mind this idea to build a, take a framework approach 
which I guess is delivering the flexibility you need to do all these different projects. Was that where you started from the outset? Yes, it was. And I'd, I'd love to say it was all my own uh, my own decisions and, and ideas in that respect. But I was blessed with having uh, a really good co-founder that, that knew the benefits of building um, this type of solution in a, in a modular framework as part of a, uh, a larger scale system. And um, although I'm, I'm technically um, able to keep up with the conversation, now I really lent on his guidance and the senior developer's guidance in terms of how that should take shape. Um, what was also maybe driving us on is um, the affordability um, element. So we knew that our opportunity to uh, make an impact in these areas was around creating a really affordable um, solution uh, for these partners uh, and a solution that was able to also scale um, to their neighbors, but also be made available to the broader public sector network. Um, so that affordability element meant that we had to build in a certain way. And every time we did a project or had a new opportunity, uh, it was a case of, okay, how do we um, expand our framework? How do we uh, build upon it? And what it's allowed us to do is get to a point where um, we have this really strong technical um, architecture that's being uh, continually improved uh, on every project. And we're now able to do really great things technically in terms of developing uh, tailored algorithms and tailored APIs to support um, the, uh, the way in which our, our tools are delivering uh, great results for our partners. So uh, it, it's kind of been a case of responding to um, the circumstances around affordability, um, but also, you know, great knowledge in my, my founding partner in being able to do that. So when you're thinking of affordability, what's the starting point? How do you know what affordability is for different organizations, different sizes, organizations, I guess, different budgets they have? What's the starting point? I think being, you know, very upfront with those initial conversations has become our, our, our strong point. Uh, but in the early days, you know, we were, we were really nervous around, you know, um, being too expensive and losing the opportunity compared to underselling ourselves and um, struggling to deliver. And it was a real challenge early on to um, find the, the sweet point there, especially as we were um, still building out the technical capability, the framework. So we still had quite big costs um, to overcome ourselves uh, in delivering solutions. Um, we were able to um, find ways through it, uh, basically with some of our uh, best best partners, our early adopters at the time. They were very transparent about um, the opportunities available uh, in the sector. Uh, and you just learn over a period of, of time, I think, you know, where the um, budgets kind of lie. But they're always changing. Mm. Um, they're getting tighter and tighter. But different forms of investment can come from all sorts of different areas um, that make opportunity, make new opportunities available. Yeah. Um, but I think we're benefiting from the fact that we, we are known as being affordable and we're known as being very transparent, I think, in terms of how we are able to cost things. And we're getting better at costing them and making those decisions around cost much more transparent. 
essentially our partners need to know how much things cost from us. Mm. So we become the informing party on that. And I think we're getting better at having different packages of work and different levels of sophistication in the solution and the offer um, for them to respond to. Um, so the whole forming of the business case, the forming of the um, the investment case for those partners, uh, we we become party to that and we, we help inform them and show them what the opportunities are in that in that field of, of costing yeah. and affordability and return on investment. Which is an important part of the sales process because it's not a case that this decision is made by the person that you're dealing with, the, the, the point person in the organisation. There's a lot of complexity behind decision, decisions on where to spend the, the, this limited budget. So it's good sales practice, I think, that any business could learn from and I think that any business has to do these days because it's much much harder uh, to win new customers they want they want to know that value they want to know they're getting good value for what they're investing in so George what does the business look like today how big are you and how many customers where are you on your journey we're still at the very early stages um, it's you don't want to get ahead of ourselves and we're in early stage growth um, which is really exciting um, it's a it's a really exciting place to be um, we're, we're coming up to about, um, 15, 16 customers now, um, with a few of those customers, uh, supporting us with larger scale implementations. Um, so the team itself though, isn't too much bigger. We've, we've only needed to bring in a little bit of, um, product support and a little bit of, um, kind of admin uh, support for, for myself uh, as well. Um, and we're really just feeling out um, what our capacity is for full growth um, within our current kind of company composition, uh, the current team, um, to get an understanding of how far we can take it uh, at this stage mm. uh, before needing to uh, recruit any more, anyone else into the, into the team. Uh, we've been able to take the same uh, designers and developers uh, on the whole journey with us, uh, increasing their their dedications and their um, their roles um, in delivering the product uh, throughout the whole course of the journey. Um, so we're just at a point now where um, there are really difficult decisions to make in terms of um, the scale of projects we undertake, uh, the number of projects that we undertake at this period of time but also trying to work out where the big scaling opportunities are, where we think we might have some product market fit with some of the solutions that we're delivering um, and how to uh, put all of our, um, all the right amount of resources uh, in, into those types of opportunities. Uh, it, it's worth kind of mentioning we've managed to go through those difficult early stages and that, that pivoting and then into the current product offer um, all unfunded um so we've been able to grow up to this stage just on on revenue um which is fantastic and is something that i think puts us in a really kind of good position to um make the right decisions uh at this this stage now um so we have been able to stay very lean um in our um our approach and in our growth up till now um, but yeah, big decisions coming up, I think. Right. So this is the point when you think, do we take external investment to really accelerate this growth? And what are some of the concerns you have of doing that at this point? 
I'm always concerned, I think, about um, the wrong decision. And I think as a, as a, maybe a founder, um, you have that kind of, kind of perfectionist attitude around what you're doing. Um, I want to be a hundred percent sure that um, we're taking investment at the right time uh, because we're really clear on the opportunity um, available to us. Um, it's not clear yet. Um, and it's, there's still certain um, um, opportunities I think we need to carve out um, where there's maybe more impact that we can have and we can deliver more value um, to the customers that we're working with. Uh, and I think as that becomes more visible and more tangible, um, then the case for investment becomes much, much clearer, much more easier to make. I won't have to, to, to fight it and yeah. mold it um, because at the moment, I just there isn't the capacity to go on that fundraising journey uh, at the moment we're really driven by how do we increase our capacity to ensure you know we deliver on um, the current uh, clients deliver on the current product um, and keep the level of growth um, and the trajectory that we're on as it is um, where the injection of investments necessary I think it'll become much clearer um, hopefully as we get through our next set of milestones uh, and see the um, the revenue and the client number increase. And how detailed then have you defined this plan? You talked there about business plans. Did, did you start the business with one? Has it evolved over time? Or is the business plan really coming to fore now that you've got this evidence from the partnerships that you've been conducting? What does that look like? It, it's coming together now. Right. Now that we've got traction and growth with some of the um, the tools um, that we're developing, uh, it, it's it's able to come together in a more cohesive business plan. That's not to say that I didn't have some plans previously. It's just they were blown out of yeah. the water by <laughs> um, you know that slow sales cycle, slow, slower slower than expected sales cycle originally, and then COVID, um, and then really after COVID or during and after COVID, just piecing together where the market really sits um, because, you know, the market was blown out yes. of the water as well um, in terms of where opportunities lay and where um, where revenue and, and uh, investment lay as well. So it, it's only now that we're actually able to uh, see a true representation of the market and a true representation of both the impact we can have and the the opportunity ahead. And are you doing all the sales at the moment or do you have um, some support? Do you have a small sales team working with you? So it's just founder sales. So it's just just myself. Um, and I'm, I've just gotten a bit more support, but not directly in sales, more more in supporting me uh, in coordinating um, and organizing the pipeline. I guess you could call that sales, yeah. but not a, not a defined role like an... SDR or a business development manager or anything like that, um, because I did look into it and, and um, we discussed it. And I lean on you for your input and advice uh, many times, but um, understanding when to go faster and accelerate that sales process, I think uh, I've been too early to uh, to press that accelerator button in the past and tried to do a higher. Uh, when we weren't quite ready. Um, as we're um, approaching having a better understanding of our product and the markets it's operating in, 
apps. So we're seeing the pipeline and the the kind of playbook kind of develop around how we want to create the types of relationships that we know we can we can uh, sell into and and have success in. But that's those are still quite delicate uh, relationships and. Uh, as a founder, I think I'm still um, very much leading those conversations and, and will be for uh, at least the, the short term foreseeable, definitely. And how did sales sit with you uh, as an individual? Did it come naturally? Um, do you feel comfortable doing it? What's your view on on that part of being a CEO founder driving sales in the early days? <laughs> I've, I've grown into the role, I think. Um, <laughs> right. I'm very much, you know, I'm very much a, a people kind of person. I'm very uh, happy having um, those types of conversations. I guess I'm less happy um, just hard selling into uh, somebody as a customer. I like developing relationships. I like developing partnerships. And I think that's sometimes a, a very difficult balance to hit because um, I don't want to let people down. Yeah. Uh, and these are kind of personal traits that I think uh, they can really help support some elements of, you know, that sales process and understanding your customer. Um, but they, I recognize they can sometimes hinder um, certain other elements of um, cutting to the chase, finding out the opportunity, um, you know, resolving the um, the potential sale and things like that. Um, so, I'm continually learning and improving kind of how um, to go about that. And I think my approach to it suits the company in its current position and what it's currently doing. Um, but as the company grows and um, the opportunities grow, um, it's something that I'll take more and more advice and more and more uh, lessons in uh, how to improve and how to develop uh, the company in that whole sales function. Uh, I can see how it's going to evolve Um and yeah, I'll, I'll play as much a role as I can in, in developing that. And what advice would you give to fellow founders that find themselves in the same situation that they've got to drive sales early on? Any any advice and tips you'd give them? Yeah, I'm, I'm quite um, happy to give the type of advice um, I just mentioned around, you know, you're looking for for partners you're looking for yeah advocates early on you're looking for people that are going to get behind you um you know personally and professionally so you've got to um be supporting them uh, and giving them something to get something back from them and i think early on early on i i did i think i neglected how um much my own network could support me in those processes you think you have to go and and find things out for yourself that are uh, are new that could be you know over the hill um out of sight but actually the success that we managed to have was because of those most local to us are those that knew us best um and that we we put as much as possible into those relationships um and they were the ones that led to those first connections first sales um and first um, first product offers getting off the ground. Great. So we've kind of looked at your um, story to founding Mortar um, and where you are today early in its process. And I'm, I'm also keen to really understand what the psychological challenges are for founders who are dealing with this, because being a founder is a pretty lonely place, uh, even with a co-founder and a small team around you. 
Um, how do you, you know, is it your network again that's helping you through that? Because you've, you're, you're fighting the good fight alone sometimes and often probably feeling like, are we really getting anywhere? Or, or is it all roses in the garden at Mortar? No, far, <laughs> far from it. it. It's roses in the garden. It's roses in the garden currently. And I think that's a brilliant place to be. And, and we want to keep it that way, definitely. And, and to be honest, um, Mortar's always been, you know, really... Um, uh, rewarding environment to work in and the people we're working with um, are incredibly supportive. So all my experiences around mortar are, are absolutely fantastic. I guess I made poor mistakes uh, earlier on in my um, career um, before even recognizing that I was a founder. I, I operated companies previously yeah. um, and I've made made you know, good decisions and bad decisions and, and you learn from them. Um, so in Mortar, I'm, I'm very protective of the, uh, the great environment that we have. Um, that's not to say that we're still, you know, there are still bad decisions that, that come about around um, new projects, new customers and things like that, less so now than in the past. Um, but I think uh, I am super protective of um, the team and making sure we've got the right environment to grow uh, and to deliver, you know, really good results for the the customers that we've got. But um, yeah, it's not to say that it's, it's definitely not been rosy in the past, and it's a it's an almighty kind of struggle yeah. um, to you know get that uh, that product um, defined and into the market and in a position where you're able to talk about it with with real kind of passion and verve. And I think uh, that's only happened quite recently that we've actually. Um, been able to frame ourselves in being a um a public sector kind of technology partner you know with a with a product offer you know that's only happened very recently so it's been a, a four-year kind of process up to now of of being able to get there so to say it was easy um i'd be doing a great injustice yeah, to the I'm sure it wasn't. Um, yeah. the struggles of, of founder life yeah yeah how do you uh, stay on top of it then? What do you do outside of work to uh, just kind of stay grounded, I suppose, and be able to deal with the, the demands of being a founder? I think I've always had um, ways to, to relax. So being outdoors, exercising, you know, it sounds cliched, but, you know, that giving yourself that time, I think, is uh, is hugely important. I think in my in my 20s, um, and early 30s, uh, I didn't take my foot off um, the accelerator, and I, I regret not doing that now right. uh, because I think I didn't give myself the time to um, enjoy the relationships uh, and the uh, the scenarios that I was in, the circumstances, uh, and you just add more pressure uh, to yourself in those types of um, uh, types of circumstances. So I'm, you know, I don't. Um, I don't hammer myself too hard uh, on, you know, uh, you know, staying up late hours working anymore. Um, I just try and be as productive as I can in the time that I've got and make sure I'm spending times with those, those important to me. Um, But yeah, it's it's a struggle to strike that balance because there's always work. There's always things pressing. There's always things to do. Uh, I guess I've been doing it a long time. So you just learn to, um, you learn to live with it yeah. i guess in some respects which isn't isn't the greatest advice but well we all deal with it in different ways don't we um i mean i find myself trying to cram more into the 
you know every minute by using the minutes up perfect example would be don't don't waste an hour in the gym without listening to a podcast that might help you with the business um but that's the way i'm wired i just like that overload of you know my way of resting is you know go do as much as you can but make sure it's different from the day job um so we're all different but it's good to get a perspective uh, and i've seen the way you've operated uh, you you're you're a very personal individual you're very relaxed um, you have a really good temperament, I think, for a founder. Um, I've never seen you get stressed, so you know, hopefully it's working for you. Thanks, Phil. Uh, good to hear. I'm glad that's the case. Yeah. Um, but no, I don't. I don't really get too too stressed, and I think um, there's there's lots of coping mechanisms around uh, around that that I've had uh, for a long time. Uh, it's, it's a good natural attribute to have. Great. Well, thank you for exploring it with me because I do think it's an important part of uh, being a founder and people maybe underestimate just the strain it puts on us um, and, and how we might be able to deal with that. Um, what does Morton need right now then, George? What do you, what can people do to help uh, you and, and your business and, and where do they get in touch with you? Oh, thanks, Phil. Um, so right now we're in that exciting stage of you know, early, early growth. So if people know of a... Um, uh, a public sector service if they've got um, uh, relationships with you know, housing, um, health or, or local authority um, partners, we'd love to hear from them. There's there's loads of services that I feel that we could be supporting and making sure that they're um, delivering a better, more efficient service uh, to their citizens or residents. Um, so if people feel that um, there's someone that could be appropriate for us to talk to, we'd really, really love to hear from them. Uh, we're at a point where every use case and every potential even fringe case is is interesting for us to um, have a conversation around. It just informs our overall approach um, and, and who knows where um, there could be good opportunities to to work with new um, new clients and new partners. Great. And I think the best way to reach me is is through LinkedIn as well. So I'm active on LinkedIn and, and that's the place to find me. Um, or just, I think we're pretty Googleable now, so uh, you can hit Mortarworks and find us. But yeah, me, George Unsworth on LinkedIn is maybe one of the best routes. Brilliant. Thank you, George. Well, I'm sure there are people listening that may be able to help. We've, we've had conversations with a few public sector companies and uh, yeah, hopefully we'll make some connections through this podcast. Um, is there anything that you feel like that you would like to add um, if you're thinking going back to starting out on this journey as a founder anything you do differently uh, and and any last words of advice to anyone listening to this who might just be starting out on their personal journey i think there's there's moments where um i would have gone with my gut a little bit more right. and moved a bit more quickly you're always thinking that you need to take advice and and guidance but ultimately you know best, I think, um, when you're so intimately um, bound to your, your venture, your enterprise, that, um, uh, you know, too much noise can be, at an early stage, can be very, very distracting. And I think there were maybe early on, um, I could have, you know, moved a bit quicker if I'd listened to myself more more honestly about the situation. And I think that's a good thing for, you know, any founder uh, it's tough to be honest with yourself sometimes uh, i found that you know um, the original uh, projection for for mortar and what we wanted to be doing you know it, it didn't 
didn't come together in the way that we were anticipating. Yeah. And I think could have recognized that sooner, could have moved quicker, but thought that I'd go and get more validation from elsewhere around that. Whereas really honestly, I knew right. how we had to, had to change tack. Yeah, I think that honesty element is a really, it's a really challenging uh, aspect for, for founders, but uh, ultimately it's one that will, will give reap great dividends if, if able to be uh, adhered to. It is a fine line though, isn't it? With, you know, having this feeling that perhaps it's not uh, heading in the direction you uh, expect it to or wanted it to, and then having the discipline and, and this podcast behind Startup Lines draws on its experiences of obviously operating behind enemy lines as a startup founder, you know, having that discipline to say, no, I'm going to stop doing this or I'm going to start doing something different. It's really hard to do that. Oh, hugely, yeah. And I think you you want to have the best voices around you to, to listen to and guide you. But sometimes at early stage, that's, that's not necessarily there. So your voice is the one that you've got to listen to the most um, and try and understand it. But yeah, it, it, you're operating in really complex uh, environments. Um, and sometimes it's just not always clear uh, which is the best path to take. Um, but ultimately, if you're um, passionate about the path that you do choose to go down, uh, you can grow in confidence as a result. Um, and, and yeah, gr- growing confidence um, based on those decisions uh, is just a very rewarding um, experience, and, and you get better at, I think, making those those difficult decisions as you as you gain and a bit more confidence in doing so. You and I have known each other a little while. I've been a sounding board for you and your business. Do you have other advisors that you call on, with either specialities in certain areas that might fill the gaps that you have? Have you? Have you purposely built up an advisor network to help you answer those questions you know what not not too extensively not in the way that i think a lot of other people approach you know their their advisory component i think there's there's people i listen to and people that i follow very carefully and closely um but to do to say that they were advisors would be be quite right um and i think informally you know there's a lot of people that I lean on in the team, even for, yeah. for those types of, you know, strong advising and, you know, everybody can has a voice and everybody can um, have a, a good say. And I'll listen to everybody's um, input um, because those are the ones that know me and know the, the company the best um, outside of that, you know, it's something that I think we probably need to develop um, and get more people more aware of the work we're doing. Um, and that comes down to maybe me uh, being more public, and raising the profile of Mortar right. uh, more effectively as well to attract um, new voices and the right voices to, to help guide us. Um, I think there's a lot of um, great expertise around um, scaling in the public sector and scaling solutions in the public sector. Um, that is areas where I'm sure we could, and I could personally um, have extra support from. Um, and there's a few maybe mentoring you know, schemes and opportunities that uh, I'm still very keen to um, to pursue. Yeah, and even your uh, existing client partnerships, you know, they can be a really useful source for advisory roles. If they're passionate about the way in which you're solving their problems, they're often really good people to have as advisors, particularly in a complex buyer environment such as public sector, you know, creating advisory groups, boards, whatever you want to call them, can be a really effective way for you to build momentum, but also get the, the knowledge and the advice you need 
to take the business to the next level. Yeah, I completely, I completely agree. And I think it's very much, you know, in the, in the roadmap for us to be maybe leading on developing those types of uh, opportunities for people to become um, advisors and take an advisory um, uh, relationship with us. So I think it's somewhere where we'll be really proactive yeah. um, in the future. Yeah, I think it's an underutilized thing. Thanks, and, and I'm not saying that just as someone who is an advisor. I, I'm learning just that the, the different types of advisors that you have, um, you know, whether they're, you know, very specifically within a domain that you don't have the experience in or they have a market experience or a number of different advisors you might tap into customer advisory groups being one of them but i think it's an underutilized asset um, that is inexpensive highly flexible and can be a really useful way to to grow your business so george let me ask you one final question then really and, and this is sort of turning the tables a bit for you you know, uh, you and I have talked about go-to-market. We've talked about sales. Um, we've talked about the timing for hiring your salespeople. I mean, what are you working on at the moment, specifically in the commercialization of your business, that I might be able to help you with? So if you've got a question for me about where you are, that I might be able to give you some advice or insight to, to dealing with. Anything come to mind? Ooh, so much comes to mind. <laughs> uh, so at the moment we're <laughs> at the moment we're um, trying to um, create our case study material and our um, our kind of full um, product documentation as well. Right. And I think it's making that material um, really accessible. You know, making it really clear to the um, to the sector. You know what what it is that we're trying to do. And I think if I can share that with you and get your input on, you know, whether that's hitting um, the right the right points um, and whether it's clear. Clar- clarity and simplicity of messaging is, is something that you get so bogged down in um, the technicalities of what you're delivering that the clear, simple messaging that you need to raise and elevate your voice and, and people so people can recognize uh, exactly what the opportunity is and working with you uh, that's sometimes uh, missed so if i can lean on you to make sure we're yeah we're creating really strong and simple messaging from a sales perspective that would be fantastic and what part do you think that will play in helping you with your go-to-market strategy who's asking for this in terms of our kind of outbound engagement you know the draw, drawing the dots between you know what the um, product is and the clients that we think um, customers that we think could be uh, most appropriate for it they need to be able to draw a point back to knowing that you know we're a highly legitimate and, and you know established business and that we've got um, skin in the game in the terms of the solutions that we're delivering and I think when we reach out you know making sure that people are actually able to draw the right conclusions from um, looking at us as a company and our profile um, that they're able to um, then pursue us actively um, in terms of responding um, to our outbound right. messaging. And, and is, is the case study just part of a broader uh, content strategy that you've already got up and running and, and clearly defined? Yeah, we know that in the public sector, if we can draw upon a success and 
have that success advocated for by the customer as well, um, then that's looked upon really positively in these sectors. Um, and I think being able to really um, use that success to um, draw in more interest uh, and more opportunities is something that we're not doing enough of right. yet. So uh, we need to be creating the right opportunities for people to engage with us through um, uh, knowledge of those uh, those case studies. Um, so whether that's done with our partners um, through some show and tell events or through um, engagement uh, opportunities that we create um, and host maybe some meetings where we present um, these to the sector, uh, we need to we need to be much more proactive in in creating those engagement and those good touch points. Yeah, um, and that that was the reason for my question really is that when businesses create case studies, they see it as one uh, one task, and they create this glossy looking brochure or whatever. And even if it's a solid outcomes based case study, then they don't really make it work hard enough for them. And what you'll hopefully have now are partners that are prepared to go on record to talk about what the experience was like was working to solve the problem through your solution and the ways in which you can cut that case study up and deliver it. So I would also think about the medium. What are the mediums in which we can do this? Yes, we've got webinars, we've got events, we've got um, workshops, we've got written papers, we've got blogs, we've got you know, podcasts, we've got everything. And the trick is to take that one uh, one example and then slice it lots of different ways across different mediums because you, what you don't know of course is who's where are they going to discover you how are they going to stumble across you know yes some of it might be your outreach but 90% of the time it's because somebody else mentioned something or they searched something and found you um, and that's why I think it's important to really make those case studies work very hard for you by thinking about the medium and then thinking about how can we repurpose that in all the ways possible Often people say the hard thing is actually having the initial content. But when you've got content, you can repurpose that in 50 different ways. And that, certainly with the help of things like ChatGPT now, that's just got a hell of a lot easier. So that, that would be my advice to anyone thinking about how do I get the most out of a case study. That's great advice, Phil. Thank you. And we'll be coming back to you yes, to, sure. uh, well, to help us on that journey. Well, George, it's been great talking to you today. Thank you very much. Um, Delighted to see that things are going well with Mortar. Uh, really interested to watch your story evolve over the last four or five years. Can't wait to see where you take it next. And I'm sure we'll continue to work together. Uh, and thank you very much for joining us uh, today on Behind Startup Lines. Thank you, Phil. Absolute pleasure. And uh, I'll see you soon. Bye for now. That wraps up another episode of Behind Startup Lines. A huge thank you to George for joining us today and providing such an in-depth view into the heart of Mortar's journey. It's conversations like this that remind us of the resilience and adaptability needed to not just survive, but thrive in a startup ecosystem. As George highlighted, transparency and pricing and the power of partnerships are pivotal in the current market landscape, especially in the public sector. His experience reinforces the value of trusting one's instincts and the role of advisors in steering towards success. If you've taken notes, shared a nod of agreement, or found a spark of inspiration from our discussion, consider passing this episode along to someone in your network who could benefit from George's insights. And don't forget to rate us and subscribe for more conversations that decode the gritty reality of startup life. Join us next time on Behind Startup Lines as we continue to draw back the curtain on the startup world 
offering unvarnished tales and strategies that could be the catalyst for your next big move. Until then, keep innovating, keep building, and let's keep this conversation going. This is your host, Phil Guest, signing off from behind Startup Lines. Over and out. Over and out.